0: Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at DJ Burr one zero two two on Facebook, the DJ Burr on Instagram, and at DJ Burr one zero two two on Twitter. Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Making an Addict. Today I have Robert Cox with me. Uh, Robert uh, hosts the podcast Mindful Recovery, and I am pleased that he's here to join me today. Robert, good morning.
1: Thanks for having me, DJ. It's fun being here.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, I have been in the mental health field in one capacity or another for about 25 years, a little over. Um, I have been clean myself 28 years and at the ripe old age of 50 finished my master's degree and built my own private practice in counseling. Um so I run Life Recovery Consulting in, we have offices in Liberty and in Richmond, Missouri. Wow. Um, yeah, like a busy so, guy. I'm pretty busy right now, yeah, trying to carve out time for family in there somewhere and and keep my own head straight, do my own mindfulness to uh, find some sanity in the spaces.
0: Isn't that the truth? I mean, I love talking to other providers who are identify themselves as being in recovery as well. Um You know, I've been in recovery approaching five years now, and it's just changed my life completely. So I can't imagine what that would look like, let's say, 20 plus years from now. So, you know, I I truly appreciate anyone who's willing to say, you know, I'm clean, I'm sober, I'm in recovery, and I'm helping other people get there, too. So thank you for that.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, as you move through the years you build more of a life that you want to stay a hold of. And that that makes it a little easier to stay clean. You know, I mean, the cravings, of course, I seldom deal with I had one at 15 years clean, that was pretty serious, got my butt back into counseling and did the things I needed to do to keep myself out of risk. And, uh, but you know, it, it's pretty much just cruising in your life like everyone anyone else would and you build such a life that you really giving it up is is a more horrifying idea than just dealing with the trauma
0: right and so you also have to deal with the ups and downs instead of uh ignoring them or numbing them uh, like everyone else right
1: sure yeah um and it's kind of you know this this idea of brokenness has been very big on my mind for the past year and how that's really at the root of addictions. It's the root of all of us, though. It's just that um, if we're raised in families that are not breaking us in extreme ways, we're generally provided with some coping mechanisms to deal with those other broken spaces that the world provides us.
0: Mm. Uh, wow. I, I really appreciate what you're saying here. Can you talk more about the brokenness piece that you've been, you've been pondering on? I
1: think, you know... Um, my own faith journey in recovery was, was through Buddhism back to Christianity. And so there's a lot of this focus on uh, suffering, compassion, what that means, right? And, and what I have come to realize is that we are all of us broken. You know, there's this great poem out there that's attributed to um, Rumi, the poet, the 12th century mystic poet, I'm not sure where it comes from. I've done some digging on the Internet, but it's most often attributed to Rumi, although I can't find it in his works. Um, But it's a man talking with God, and God is asking him about what he does with different parts of his body. You know, what do you see with your eyes? What do you hold with your hands? And God says, what do you hold in your heart? And he says, my pain and my suffering— And God says to him, stick with it. The broken places are where the light enters you.
0: Mm.
1: So from a, you know, less um, Eastern mystic kind of perspective, the idea of Adam and Eve, the story of the apple in the Christian view, um, that if you believe in an omniscient, omnipotent God, then you must believe that he knew Adam was going to bite. You must believe that brokenness was intended from the very beginning. And, and I have come to believe personally that the reason that brokenness was intended from the very beginning is because it is only because of our brokenness that we have need, mm-hmm. need for connection to each other. And so this need drives connection, and connection is what drives our spiritual development our lives. Um, if we look at the brain on a neurological level, everything about the brain functions best when it's in connection right? With other beings. Yeah. Um, and this is true of on, the, on the mammalian level. Even, even we know horses and dogs have this secretion of oxytocin and these great brain chemicals when they are in connection, social connection. So I have just become convinced that these broken spaces are extremely important. They're also extremely sucky. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're painful. They're not fun. And they're terrifying at times. Oh yes. And you know, if we're in a perfect family, and none of us are, but if we're in a family that's doing fairly well, they help us through these spaces. And what they tell us is what Brene Brown said in her talk on vulnerability: is that you know, you're you're imperfect, and you're going to screw up, but you're worthy of love and belonging. Exactly. And so they gave us a, a safe place to fall and and to bounce and to get hurt and to have someone who will pick us up and help us get back into the fray. Mm. When we don't have those things, the world becomes quickly unsafe. And when we fall, it feels like, and in some cases really could be, the end of the world. But the child's mind does not have a way of processing that, dealing with that, holding that kind of st- And so it never develops that ability. And we become adults who look for whatever we can find to just numb out that fear and that pain.
0: To make us feel better.
1: Absolutely. Now, if you add to that the fact that there are some brains out there who are uh, genetically predisposed to be addicted to certain substances, then that substance quickly becomes the substance of choice for numbing out.
0: Yeah, I love everything you're saying. I totally 100% support it. Um, You know, I truly believe that we're all perfectly imperfect. uh, And that's okay. I'd rather be imperfect than perfect. um, Because I tried to make my life perfect, and it was hell.
1: Well, and if it were perfect, there would be no point to it, right? I mean, if... If I attain perfection, this is the idea in Buddhism of the Bodhisattva, and the idea of Christ in Christianity is someone who has attained perfection and has the ability to escape suffering entirely and gives all of that up to take on the suffering of others. Why? Why would you do that? You would do, you would do that because you value connection more than you do freedom from pain.
0: Yep. That's true. And if
1: if I could be perfect, I still wouldn't want to because it would mean I have no need anymore for connection, and that connection is what really deeply feeds me, Mm. even though it's terrifying, even though it sucks, even though I know I'm going to get hurt. My daughter's 16 years old. She's just getting to that stage where she's dating boys, and she doesn't like any of them because all of them are just little hormone bags, and, you know... Um, she's like, I, I, wanted, I would like to be with this guy, but I'm afraid he'll hurt me. She knows I'm a therapist, so, you know, there are times when she takes advantage. Like, can I bring him over, and you can just tell me if he's somebody that's going to hurt me or not. <laughs> and I said, kiddo, there are two things I can guarantee you about any relationship you get into. One is you will be hurt. That's inevitable. Two is it will be worth it.
0: That's a powerful message to, to hold on to. I, I wish someone had told me that early on.
1: Well, it's just, you know, you have to go into relationship assuming that this person is eventually going to hurt me. And and are they worth it? And can I get through it? Right? And if I'm relying on addiction to, you know, if I'm numbing out constantly to deal with the pain, then the answer is no, I'm probably not going to be able to make that turn, Mm. right?
0: Mm -hmm. So, for you, um, when did you know that you had a problem? Uh, When my heart stopped. Oh, when your heart stopped. (laughs) Can you say more? Yeah.
1: That was a big clue, wasn't it? (laughs) Jeez. Um, Yeah, I started... I started drinking um, when I was about 14, going over to a friend's house. His mother was alcoholic, and she she never knew how much vodka she'd put down and how much she hadn't. So it was easy for us to steal a little bit here and there, and that was how it started. And by the time I was 16, I was drinking heavily in the parking lot before I went into school. And at 17 and 18, I had these rock star teachers who made me take myself seriously for about a minute. And then I got into college and some of my trauma increased and I started using drugs and I graduated from marijuana to methamphetamine and cocaine. And at 24 years old, after an unsuccessful suicide attempt, um, well, it would have been about 22 when that was done and I decided to dive deeper into the addiction. And it turns out there's only so much you can put in your body before it revolts. You're right. And so I collapsed. And so I collapsed on the floor after a particularly heavy day of use. And when I talked to the doctor, he said, I don't know why you're alive. Um, but if you do this again, you probably won't be. Mm-hmm. And so I had to decide then and there whether or not I was serious about getting clean or whether I really did want to end myself. Um, it scared me straight. Nine months later, though, I'm still white knuckling. And I have friends coming every week to where I work saying, come to this party on the weekend. It's going to be great, blah, 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 right? And I haven't built any new relationships that are healthy. And I'm not really going to any meetings or anything. I have no structure in my recovery. But I know one thing. I know if I don't get out of here, I won't stay clean. So I moved to Kansas City, uh, 250 miles away, and I know no one. And so because I know no one, I decide I better get to some groups, and that was the beginning of my real recovery.
0: Mm. And which groups did you get into?
1: Um, mostly NA and, and OA. Um, and uh, that was it. And some of the church groups, local, n- not so much church. I did a lot of time at the uh, local Buddhist temple, the Reme Center here in Kansas City. I would go meditate there. I got involved in some Chinese martial arts that allowed meditation group stuff along with it, that kind of stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you mentioned that there was some trauma. Uh, Would you say that that's the primary reason as to what led you into uh, addiction?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it is for everyone. I think trauma is at the core, the root of every addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I firmly believe that Gabor Maté talks a lot about that. Um, He's a brilliant doctor out of Canada and talks a lot about that. Yes, in his book, Um, Uh,
0: In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts.
1: Yeah, which is based on the Buddhist idea of the realm of the hungry ghosts, um, which is this realm where um, people go when they die, one of the realms that they can go to, where there's this um, constant craving, right, that is never filled. Um, and that's pretty much addiction in a nutshell. Um, but that craving really comes out of that broken um, relationship space, that trauma, mm. and is is constantly fed by shame. And so, yeah, um, you go through life and every little... Every little thing that happens is the end of the world. I spill a glass of water. It's because I'm an idiot and I don't know how to handle even a glass of water. And, you know, it spirals down into this shame cycle, you know. Um, So absolutely, trauma is at the core of every addiction.
0: How do you work with uh, explaining that idea to your clients when they come in? How how do you approach it?
1: I I don't like out of the first few sessions because, you know, they've spent most of their life trying to ignore their trauma. And so the last thing I want to do is throw it in their face right when they come in. Mm. So, so treatment for me looks multifaceted. It depends a on what drugs you've been using, you know, primarily. And because we need to stabilize your use first, if you're using methamphetamine and heroin, Um, I might not have a client next week if you continue to shoot up, right? Right. So so that looks more like let's just get a handle on your use and focus a lot on cognitive therapies and changing the way you're thinking and build in some coping mechanisms that you can be using in the meantime. And once we get you stable, we can go into those more kind of attachment issues with, you know, what happened, when did it happen, and we start with just doing a basic genogram, which looks like, you know, tell me about your family, tell me about the relationships, you know. But they, it's not like they come in and sit down and I I ask who hurt you, right? Right. <laughs> that it, that doesn't usually, but we it generally is fleshed out more organically in the discussions, you know, because a lot of times... I've had patients say I had a great family, you know, there were no problems in my family. And as we start to flush it out through the genogram and just through talk in general from session to session, what I find out is that um, I was there when my father murdered my mother, you know, things like this. So um, the trauma comes out, but often they don't see it that way. They're just reacting to it that way. We do a lot of psychoeducation around how the brain works, especially with PTSD and anxiety issues. Mm -hmm. Why are you having that happen? How does the brain work? Um, You know, the fact that the limbic region responds to the slightest little environmental uh, sensory input. And your amygdala remembers that happening when one of these other traumas happened and it triggers you into this fight or flight state. And then all you want to do is run, but you can't figure out where you want to run. You know, I've had patients call me from rehab before and say, I don't want to be here. And my question to them is, "Okay, where do you want to be? And almost always I hear, I don't know. Do you want to go home? No. Where where do you want to be? Do you want to be back out in the street? No. Where do you want to be? Where would you feel safe? Nowhere. That's the point. That's the point. That's the point. Right now, there is nowhere you can go that you will feel safe, but where you are right now is probably the safest place for you.
0: Right. And it's temporary. You know, they're not going to be be there forever.
1: No, this is to get the drugs out of your system and help you begin slowly creating some new coping mechanisms. So the next time you call me, you won't, and I ask you how you will feel safe, you won't say, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. You'll say, "Well, I've learned these tools. I think I can handle it, right?"
0: Yeah, I love it when you're able to to sit and talk with a client and hear, kind of them regurgitating back what you've shared with them, the tools that you provided them, and to hear that they're actually using them. Um, I think that's amazing. That's an amazing experience that I, I and that I look forward to having every session because it happens.
1: I think. Yeah, and I think one of the coolest things is when they say, you know, I was thinking about doing this, but then I heard your voice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> You get that, too? <laughs> yeah,
1: I think we all do, right? Because our job is to become mentor, coach, counselor to them, right? And so we are hoping that when they're out there, they'll remember the discussions we've had where we've said, well, try this, try that.
0: Oh, yeah, I, um, I've been told.
1: That. I even had one patient say, do you think I'm schizophrenic because I heard your voice? I'm like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think you've just given your conscience my tone. That's it. Exactly. So,
0: what what it is is their own voice.
1: It's right. Their own voice. You are, you are remembering things we have discussed that can help you. That's it. Yes. And you hear my voice when you remember those. But it's you that's remembering that and you that needs that and you that has a sense that you need that. All right. So. Mm.
0: Do you see any folks who are dealing with behavioral addictions? That's my specialty.
1: Sure. Um, I generally refer to a friend of mine who is is specializes in sexual addictions. Okay. But, you know, I also I, I deal a lot with trauma is kind of my gig. So I deal a lot with really serious trauma, and I see patients who are borderline and self-harming a lot. Mm and self-harming is definitely one of those process addictions right so um there are multiple reasons that self-harming comes about but it's always one of those it becomes addictive at some point this is why a lot of people who self-harm will then transition into getting a full sleeve a tattoo right mm, That's uh, Yeah. so so because it's that kind of endorphin fix that's going on when i'm doing that yeah Um, gambling addictions. I'm very familiar with, Mm -hmm. um, sexual addiction is tough. I deal with it sometimes, but it depends on the level we're dealing with and, and whether I feel like I'm in my space or not. If I feel like I'm not in my space, I refer that out to a couple, a couple of friends I have who are sat certified. So,
0: okay. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been working in the sex addiction field for a few years now and it's the best work I've ever done.
1: Yeah, it well it it goes right to the core of all those relational issues, right? All the attachment issues. I mean, I, I, I had I've had patients before, and what I tell them generally is, you know, you're numbing out with sex. You're not really connecting intimately. What your fear is is connecting intimately. So, rather than risk the rejection from my wife or partner, I will hook up with someone on the internet and have an anonymous, you know, couple of hours, and that's that. No connection no risk but also no deep payoff right
0: right well my son because i'm go ahead i'm sorry no go ahead
1: because i'm not buying in at that point i'm not buying into relationships so i'm not connecting on that deep level that could feed me those things i need and what i'm doing ultimately is you know having what erica jong called zipperless sex in her book mm-hmm. right um this anonymous hookup real quick and all that's about is the endorphin flow right getting getting the brain fix and it makes me feel good for a little while and often the brain flow is the the, the endorphin fix at the end is the last and least rewarding part of that whole process right i mean you know 90 percent of the excitement is in the build-up
0: right and that's what they're chasing they're chasing the buildup. Right. As soon as the, the orgasm's over, you know, they're done.
1: And then you spiral downward into this shame cycle.
0: Yep. And sometimes that can be addictive. Staying Right. In well, that it place. starts. So
1: the, the shame cycle, of course, is the same as, as using drugs. Yep. Right. We think about it. We crave it. We go looking for it. We spend hours waiting on some dealer to show up. And when he shows up, we use, and then we feel good for a day or so, and then we come down, and the shame starts over, and the shame is now compounding everything else we're feeling, and so we use again to numb that out.
0: It's a vicious cycle, and it's so hard to break, but it can be broken.
1: The key to breaking the cycle is understanding and being okay with our own brokenness. I really have become convinced of the fact that what we need more than anything is to be able to sit with our own brokenness and say, I don't have to be perfect. I am and always have been enough. Mm. When I've, I've had clients, when I've said that to them, I've looked a client in the eye who has been repeatedly treated as an object from the time they were a child and said, you do realize you've always been enough. You were never an object. And they just start bawling because it's the first time anyone in their lives has ever said that to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have that experience often with clients. Uh, it's transformative when they finally start to, to believe that they are enough. And it is part of our job to help them understand that they are.
1: Right. But we're all born, you know, with that innate worth, that value, we're all born broken, but we're all also born worthy. Yep. Yep.
0: Just for being here, right?
1: <laughs> uh, that in itself is kind of a miracle when you think about it.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and to help people understand that they are worthy uh, is, like I said before, is life-changing. Um, I've seen people completely change their lives. And that's a different sense than from when people blow up their lives with their addictions, Right. So they start to make healthier decisions. They start to set uh, functional boundaries instead of causing harm and pain to people in their lives. They start to take care of themselves and try and to start to demand that other people treat them like they are worthy. And if they don't, they they move those people out of their lives. And
1: and I, I think I also want to make room for brokenness even in recovery, right? Oh,
0: absolutely. And,
1: and I think 12-step groups are fantastic. They saved me. And and the major reason they're fantastic is because they offer relationship and the experience of supportive relationship in many instances. Um, but one thing I think they don't get right is there's this attitude out there that seems very prevalent with, um, well, you relapsed, so now you have to start over, mm. right? no. If you're running a marathon and you fall down at mile three, I don't make you go back to the starting line and start running again. Right? That doesn't make sense. So you have two years clean and you had two bad nights. Get back up. Let's start doing what was working again. And now you have two and a half years clean down the road minus two nights that were bad. Right? Mm. I, don't, I, I don't like the attitude of looking at your relapse as a failure it is evidence of what we already knew that you are broken it does not change your worthiness right you don't have to re-earn that it was always there and so i feel like there's an attitude often in 12-step groups of that and part of that is that 12-step groups themselves are run by people as all people are that are broken oh, sure. and so occasionally you have egos get involved And and sometimes those egos can enjoy telling someone they have to start over, and now you're reliant on me again for your recovery, Mm. right?
0: Well, my experience has been is when someone relapses, even uh, let's say my uh, a sponsee or a client, when they relapse, is not necessarily it's not my job to tell them that you know they have failed. But it is my responsibility to help them identify what went wrong. Absolutely. And to make changes around that.
1: I just want to delineate the difference between that really and saying you're starting over. You're not starting over. You found out one of the places you are still broken. Let's deal with that, right?
0: Okay, I like that. And
1: let's let's see what, what, what has been working for you, where it didn't work this time, and let's shore up that broken space. So that next time we don't hit that bump, we may hit a different one, right? Two years from now, you may relapse again over something else. That's the process, right? We are broken, all of us. The one way that I think we start over a little bit is that your brain chemistry is reset to some extent at this point, right? Yes,
0: true.
1: Because you have an addictive brain and it is keyed to trigger on and respond to this addiction in ways that the neurotypical brain is not then we're going to have to put in some extra supports to deal with the cravings that you're now going to feel for the next two weeks, right? That you had maybe gotten over before.
0: Yeah. I have clients who will say, you know, I I feel like I'm back to where I was when I first came in here after they've relapsed in terms of the cravings that they're experiencing. Right,
1: And I think it's very important to do that psychoeducation and say that's because your brain kind of was reset back to the start in many ways, But that doesn't mean that you unlearned everything you have learned. It does not mean that the supports that you put in place before won't work for you again. Mm-hmm. Right? It just means we hit another place where you were broken and we need to look seriously at that and start coping with that.
0: Mm-hmm. So how do you connect with the, the client who comes in who is struggling with accepting that there are they are broken because we all are. We all have broken pieces. Um, and that the addiction can kill them. They don't see that and they don't want to hear it. How do you help them?
1: There are some people that you simply can't. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, you, I, you know, in my internship I did in a really hardcore rehab that was mostly people who were ordered to be there by their PO or were homeless and tired of being homeless because it was getting cold. Right. So I met with resistance a lot in that place. And what I learned is that I cannot work harder than my client.
0: Amen. It does
1: no good. OK. And so there are some people who simply will not be helped in that space. Now, they may need to get knocked around by life a little bit more and come in and then they'll be ready. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I know there are some people that won't. But that does not excuse me from trying to meet the resistance head on. And and get through to them. Right. Right. Um, And the way I do that is basically just, you know, I will hear one of the most common things I heard was I just need to get a job and then everything will be fine. I just need to get a job. Hmm. Right. And that was their way of saying, I really don't have an addiction problem. I'm just unemployed and that's my major problem. Mm -hmm. And once I get a job, I'll be okay, Right. I've
0: heard
1: that. And that that resistance I generally met with by saying. You've had a lot of jobs. You don't, you don't seem to have a problem getting a job. It's keeping a job that's been the problem. Mm-hmm. What was the problem with keeping the job? Well, I got dropped on and I popped dirty. Mm. So it seems to me then the problem was with the drug you were using and not able to stay away from and not the job. Right? And so it's like it's just kind of being a little bit confrontational. And just keeping that reality out in front of them until they either accept it or, in some cases, they bail and decide they can't handle it. Um, again, you know, it depends on: are you are you drinking on the weekends more than you want to, but most of the rest of the time you've controlled it and you're not ever driving and you're not putting anybody at risk? That's one kind of thing. The other one is: I'm shooting up, you know, speed balls every day. You know, those are two very different levels of problem, and and they determine how confrontational I feel I need to be in that room when I'm dealing with someone.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and for for us to be confrontational with a client, uh, it's not always easy, but we have to be we have to be well in our own space. I think to be able to do that, uh, and that's
1: it. I I think that's it. Is I have to be able to sit, and hear my client um reject me, reject what i'm saying, get nasty with me and not let that trigger my own broken spaces.
0: Exactly. Not take right. it personally. Uh, exactly. Right, because they're hurting and they're not intentionally trying to to hurt us, but that's how it comes out. Um because they're in pain. They're flailing essentially.
1: Right. I had I had someone who was not a therapy client, but someone that when I was working as a case manager with the state um, was embroiled in their own addiction. And one of the jobs is just to reach out to individuals on your caseload every three months or so and see if there's anything they need. Mm -hmm. And this was my you know, I earned a master's, which gave me M.A. after my name and I will be L.P.C. after my name. But my favorite moniker after my name is P.A.B., um, this guy was so embroiled in his addiction that he decided he wanted nothing from me and decided that I was a punk ass bitch so, oh, Lord. so I, you know, <laughs> but that's what I mean you know I actually wrote that I put a little piece of tape after my name Robert Cox MA LPC and then I put a piece of tape that said PAB afterwards oh, right
0: I love it <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was earned on my part right yes. and and that's what I mean by we have to be able to 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 not take that personally, right? I have to understand that he's he's dealing with an addiction that's crushing him right now. Yeah. And he's going to react, he's totally in fight or flight mode, and for him that means fight, mm. right? Wow. So anytime anyone says, is there anything you need, even though they're reaching out with the intention of helping, he's going to react out of that fight place because he's not had the experience of being able to trust anyone in that space. Right. And so his experience has been, you ask me if you can help me, and then you're going to hurt me somehow. And that triggers that limbic fight or flight response. Mm.
0: Powerful stuff. I mean, uh, You know, uh, this is the – for me, like I said earlier in our interview, this is the best work I've ever done. And I I truly see myself doing this work for the rest of my life um, because partially it it keeps me sober, right?
1: You know, I I frequently think about that movie Tank um, that came out a few years ago where they were in this World War II tank and they're all sitting there and they – that right before big battles where they know – bunch or all of them are liable to die they say to each other best job i ever had yeah right i i think of that frequently Mm -hmm. after after those really good but really hard days best job i ever had
0: yeah yeah and we do have really hard days so you know uh before we close i wanted to check in with you how do you take care of yourself as a person in recovery and as a provider helping other people get on the road to recovery what do you do
1: I, I connect a lot with my kids and carve out time for my family, my wife, and my kids. And then my my daughter knows what works for me at 16, you know. Um, she has the ability to be snarky at times, but sometimes she's also right in that space. And so she knows when I'm getting what she calls salty, right? That's the new term. <laughs> you're, being, you're being a little salty. And she'll, she'll look me in the eyes and she'll say, you need to go out to the woods because you're being a little salty right now.
0: Okay. Right.
1: So she knows that's kind of my reconnect space, right, is the woods. Um, the other thing, just last week I discovered this awesome, you know, trauma work is, trauma is also often stored in the body and that's a whole other discussion, oh, yeah. but uh, The Body Keeps the scores. a fantastic book about that. But I was recently, as I'm getting ready to open a group practice, I'm looking at, um a massage therapist that at very least i can refer out to and there's a guy here that does somatic therapy work, massage therapy work which is getting that deep roughing kind of work and bringing out that trauma a lot mm-hmm. and so i was interviewing him and he said well come on out and let me work on you and i'll give you a discount and you know that's so now that's something i'm doing every week because i like he was like really good oh, okay. i i I literally could not move for like 15 minutes after he was done. I had to just sit in a chair and recuperate a little bit. So,
0: Okay. um, And you'll be referring clients to him?
1: Yeah, I will. And that was why I wanted to talk to him, but he ended up showing me what he could do, and it was pretty amazing. So.
0: Hey, that's good. That's really great. I'm glad to hear that you have a good self-care routine in place. It is so important for us to take care of ourselves so we can uh, show up and help take care of other people. So, Robert... Tell our audience where they can find your podcast and how they can get in touch with you should they have any additional questions.
1: You know, you can get both of my podcasts just by going to the podcast tab on my website, which is liferecoveryconsulting.com or .org, either one. And the autism stuff is available at org. Okay. so. All right. And
0: your podcast, I believe you said one is on hiatus currently?
1: Yeah yeah both of them right now are on hiatus for a little while until I get this other stuff organized and get the group practice structure set and then hopefully by the fall I'll have some time to go back to to creating new episodes because even though my podcast mindful recovery's been in evergreen mode and you know no new episodes coming out for 6 months I keep getting about 1000 1500 downloads a week uh, no, a day. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm up. I'm up. I'm up over 100,000 downloads now. So amazing. Um,
0: so listeners, so uh, go and listen to Robert's uh, podcast because um, you know what? He may not be producing new episodes today, but there are still episodes out there to be heard.
1: And the episodes out there really are about training people to use mindfulness to help control the trauma. So,
0: yeah, we all need that information. So I'm glad it's out right. there. Well, Robert, thank you so much for being on Making an Addict today. I truly appreciate the conversation we had, and uh, I strongly uh, support the work that you're doing, and I look forward to hearing more about your growth.
1: Thank you, DJ. I appreciate it. It was fun being here.
0: Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com, or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and the thedjburr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life, and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.